Man, are you guys in for a treat with this week's guest. I'm talking about someone who has been rooted in Canadian fashion for as long as anyone can remember. Someone who went from being a school teacher to a salesperson to the head of fashion at Canada's most prestigious retail chain. This episode was so fun and so insightful that I had to split it into two episodes. In the first part of my coffee date with Barb Atkin, we hear all about her journey as a Toronto-born fashionista, how she defined success, and how she helped develop and market her first million-dollar dress using a pyramid pricing system, which ultimately got her foot in the door with Holt Renfro. You're listening to The Andrew Quelo Show, the world's only podcast dedicated to helping entrepreneurs in fashion. Barb Atkin, welcome to the Andrew Coelho Show. Uh, I'm so excited to speak with you. I think we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things, but thank you for taking time to sit down and talk to me. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm quite honored. I think I'm the one that should be honored. Um, You have an extremely reputable career in Canadian fashion, obviously, Mm -hmm. and I'm humbled that you're willing to, to share your experiences and your story with me. Can't wait. Let's just jump in. Let's jump in. Um, so first of all, like it's incredible that you've had such a crazy, awesome career and that we have never met prior to, day, to today. And, you know, we're emailing back and forth and it didn't take much for me to convince you to sit down here. And the, it was probably the easiest pitch of my life. <laughs> so... Um, I think that's going to speak to the person that you are, um, and so I'm really excited. Uh, we're we're going to jump into this. I I tried to do some research on you, and I thought I would have found a lot more stuff online, a lot more content, a lot more articles. Uh, and I know about your like ascension to Holtz a little bit, and we're going to tell that story. But I think where I want to start is I want to know about you and like where like where do you come from? Where were you born? Okay, let's start. I'm I'm a Torontonian. Born in Toronto, uh, of, I'm one of three. I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. I'm the oldest. I could kind of feel that because yeah. I'm the oldest, and like I felt that energy, <laughs> just like that. The like, oldest uh, always had a strong voice. Was given that platform to have a strong voice. Um, my father was an entrepreneur. He was in the what? luggage manufacturing business, oh. and the one thing he always said to me it was very interesting. I learned a lot. He was actually my I, he was my mentor, and I learned a lot from dad. Dad said two things to me that I always resonated. He always used to say, first of all, success has nothing to do with how much money you have in the bank. He would say, Barb, success is about getting up every morning and loving where you're going. And I grew up in a family that believed in that. And so therefore, I always just always made sure every step I took spoke to my passion, to my comfort level. I didn't care so much about approval from people. I didn't care. It was just about speaking my own truth and finding other people who we all connected with. So you get, it's all about that energy. So that was one thing, you know, success is about getting up every morning and loving where you're going. And then the other thing was interesting. Dad fought in World War II and uh, he was a sergeant in artillery stationed in London, England. And after the war, he was flying home on the uh, Air Force air, aircraft with his duffel bag over his shoulder. And he looked around and he thought to himself, hmm, commercial air travel is going to be the way of life for the masses. No one's traveling in duffel bags or big steamer trunks. I'm going to go in the luggage industry. And because there wasn't at that time anyone really doing it. Um, and he always said to me, Look around. 
Look at the world around you. Look at how people live their life. And the answer to living and your life is always right in front of you. And so from a young girl, I think I always watch people. I like to, I like to be a spectator. Mm-hmm. I was always a spectator. And I observed lifestyle. I um, watched how people dressed. I mean, as a young girl, I, I didn't even know about fashion. Fashion, I mean, no one talked about fashion. But I had an innate love of it. And, uh, you know, I was always, my, as my mother would say, you were always making collages of stuff you loved. And they're all over the room. It was always kind of style. And I would shop, take my friends to Kensington Market when we were like, you know, 11 and 12 years old. And we'd go sh- edit through all that. And always, they always say, oh, you always find the coolest stuff. And then uh, I would look at all fashion magazines. I started getting into it. But I never really thought that I'd ever have a career in fashion. Very interesting. Yeah. But you, you, you had that inspiration from, from your father. You, from my father. And actually, my grandparents were seamstresses. It was interesting. Like they, they actually were in the industry, but I didn't really pay much attention to that. Um, I became a teacher. Yeah, that so, was the interesting thing. I got into education, and I became a teacher. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I decided, oh, I'm going to become a teacher. Before teachers call it, like, where did you go to university? I went to York University. Okay. You know, studied uh, liberal arts and women's studies. So I thought of myself very much a feminine, okay. feminist. Yeah. You know, I was just of that era. Sure. Um, I uh, grew up, I was kind of a 60s flower child. Mm-hmm. I grew up probably in a, in a home, um, you know, that a very traditional home mm-hmm. where dad worked, mom stayed home. Mm-hmm. And yet I felt the role of women needed to women needed to pursue their strengths and I had a father that always said that to me as well sure but um I love to travel and so teaching was kind of an interesting thing for me because as you said teaching did give me the freedom I work with young children and uh in in uh, Toronto and I work for the North York Board of Education and actually was part of rewriting curriculum uh, for them because I could uh, what I do I kind of look around and it's just something I've always done is uh, even when I was a young girl you know if mom was decorating the house I didn't like the way it looked even at nine years old she'd say at nine years old you were moving furniture because mom no that that chair has to go here and no that's not the right wallpaper for this room it's going to crowd it and as my sister my younger sister said to me even at nine, mom was getting you to pick out the wallpaper and the colors of our house. I've heard this story before. That's funny. <laughs> uh, so, like, it, it, it's it's incredible to me because you you, you naturally have this this I guess this skill set or this this passion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, why why not take you know design or why not pursue that that instinct earlier? Why teachers college? So uh, so. Um... I got married very young. Okay. How old were you? I was 21. Okay. And at the time, my husband was pursuing, he didn't know exactly what he was doing either. The two of us had no clue, but we got married, fell in love, married. Um, I decided to become a teacher, to go to teacher's college so that I could be kind of the breadwinner right away and have a stability, have stability. And he was a academic as well, and he was studying his ma- going for his master's degree in the sociology of work, wherever that was going to go. Sure. But at the same time, We're in not order, judging. To, yeah, it was like <laughs> funny. It's all funny how these things happen. And 
to put himself through school because he didn't come from a family of a lot of money and so he needed to figure out a way of having some kind of a job to keep him in school until he could figure out where he was going. Uh, he, he became a salesman on the road. He started carrying a line of clothes part-time. And, uh, he, you know, he was a salesman in the garment industry. It was, like, really funny. He carried a line of bras. He had swimsuits. He had, I don't know, I can't remember the names of that. And he and I, on weekends, we would take his blue garment bag, the navy blue garment bag, canvas bag that all the salesmen have, put them in the back of his car, take his, his collections. We'd go, we'd travel to every small town in Ontario. And this isn't during your summers off? Yeah, my summers off yeah. and weekends when I wasn't teaching. Sure. And um, eventually he decided that he wanted to manufacture. He was working for a dress manufacturer and he thought, I could do this. So he decided he was going to start to become a dress manufacturer. And he hired a, a young designer out of Toronto. And she started making dresses, and we would sell these dresses. And sometimes they sold. Most of the time, nothing sold. We got stuck with all this inventory. Mm -hmm. and it, but it was fun. We were young. We had nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Uh, and, and it was funny. The company was called. We had no name for a company. And my husband went to a French dictionary because to have a French name meant a lot in those days. Yeah. And he opened up a French dictionary in, of names. He just like opened it and went like closed his eyes and put his hand down and went stop. And the first name was Aline, A-L-I-N-E. -E. Then he opened it down another section and the second name that came up was Morel. And he registered this name, at, it was called Aline Morel. Aline Morel became a huge company. Really? Uh, but it was funny because we eventually met a, very, a, a, a Canadian fashion designer in the evening wear business. And that was in the 70s. His name was Wayne Clark. Wayne Clark's still around. Mm -hmm. And um, we decided to manufacture him. It was like, what do we have to lose? I was teaching. My husband at the time was a salesman. And we were like, oh, let's just manufacture his clothes. And then my husband said, well, could we manufacture him? And I said, look, it, Wayne's a fashion designer. He knows how to do it all. My father had a luggage company, and he had sewers. So we could use the sewers, and we started putting together a collection. I mean, I think the first, we were all excited, the first couple of collections ended up in secondhand stores, or, or you know, stores, like it was funny, we couldn't sell it to anybody. Funny how that works now, because like, now if you end up in like a discount store, you're like, I'm tarnishing my brand. Tarnishing, like, I'm in the window of X Toggery. I don't know if X Toggery's still around, <laughs> but this was like a, like they weren't, it wasn't even like, these were resale shops. Right, and, and you were thrilled about it. We were right? thrilled, he was, yeah. we would laugh. Oh, we're in the window of X Toggery. But um, eventually, I decided to join him in the industry. Full time. Stop being so how long were you a t how long I, was this going on for how long were you a teacher we for? were on I was for a decade yeah. or eight years I, I was a teacher for at least eight years um, and it was interesting because if today like all these years later if you were ever to describe me because I always ask people especially the students that I work with and the young emerging designers like how would you can you describe yourself in one word what's that one word what is for it? me teacher it doesn't matter. Even when I was at Holt Renfrew, I was a teacher. And what I started to see is that um, I, I end up on platforms. It's just about a platform. And then I'm in the center of that platform. And then I have my audience around me. I always see that. 
So there's this audience, and then if you can talk to your audience and understand your audience, then there's something with that, and I like that. But So I ended up with working on the marketing side of Wayne Clark. Wayne Clark was the one, I always say to him today, and he's still around, that he's the one that actually brought me into the glamour and the fantasy of fashion. So what was that setup like with Wayne Clark? Like, did, did you have a license to produce his clothing or? He, he, he worked for us. Okay. So we, um, we had the company. We, he was our designer. We paid him a salary. Mm-hmm. He was responsible for coming up with the collections, traveling. We, I used to travel with him to Europe to buy the fabrics. Um, Wayne was a, he was a smart technician and we could always, we always knew when it came to design and production. So he knew, and he was very talented at every sample he made, he knew would go through production seamlessly. And he was such a technician that every garment would fit. And uh, we hired really skilled in-house salespeople who were responsible for actually the sales. And my job was basically also because as you said, you felt I was like an easy sell. You Right away, I decided to come in and talk to you. Yeah. People gravitate to me because I love people. Yeah. And so I'm not intimidated to go over and talk to the president of Holt Renfrew if I had that opportunity or anybody for that matter. And I just built relationships. I, and my husband at the time, Jack Atkin, he was um, in charge of finance. My father helped him build kind of the small infrastructure of what you needed to put together a sampling, because we were contracting a big production, but just having a small sampling area. So we would cut and sew everything in-house, design, cut and sew, send it out to be finished. And then we like- So you did all the pattern making and everything. Yeah, in-house with Mm -hmm. sample makers. Um, And my job was really to build the relationships with all the stores. And because I was a teacher, I also did, I used to bring in all the sales associates from all the stores into, instead of me going to them, I would bring them to my offices at night after work. Mm-hmm. In those days, you can do it because most stores close mm-hmm. at six o'clock today. Some stores open till 10. And I would do product knowledges, like really, and feed them. Like at your office. At my office. With, and with all with your models, with everything. with everything. And we would walk them through even so they could see the production. They could understand it from beginning to end. So they could see that our sewers sew with gloves on their hands. Mm-hmm. Because the fabrics that we were working with were so delicate, we were doing evening wear. We didn't want snags. So that they can see, this is just not some commodity sitting on a shelf. Mm-hmm. This actually has a personality. Back to the people sewing this. Mm-hmm. And our sewers would sign their name on yeah, the tag. So, yeah, so that what they knew. You know, it was like, it was a, that. It's experience, right? It was an experience. Right? I was and developing an experience for our buyers. I didn't want to just go into their store because it's in their store. If they're getting up and they're coming to our place and I was having a catered and we would have wine, it was like coming to a party, it was like a launch, yeah. but in my home, that's yeah. how I felt. And so I started to build those kind of relationships. And so that I, that's how I evolved from, I slowly transitioned, it was interesting, um, from teaching in the public school system mm-hmm. where I realized there that everyone, I was part of when immigration started changing in, in Toronto and it was, you no longer could teach just to the norm because there was no norm and I could see that. And I started to work with the experiential classroom. It was just something I wanted to do. 
I asked the, pre the principal at the time, I don't know, can, we, can I experiment with some ideas? Because I have a, a group of children in this classroom that we, sh we should hear their experiences. They can't read, they feel intimidated, and I felt we needed to reach them, make them feel special, so let's work from them. And so I started doing experiential work with these kids. And uh, they would, and it was a lot of fun, and we kind of changed the way education happened here in Toronto. It was all about, it was the child-centered learning. I started doing that. And that, that's because I could see that. And I would see, how am I going to turn kids on to learning? And how can I get their eyes wide open and find that spark? To me, it's about finding that spark. Mm -hmm. And that's the teacher in me. And that's what I carried on when I started working with my husband and his business. And, you know, I had my own thing. And then I said, let me come in because I feel I can Add really value. build this company mm -hmm. through relationships. Right. He wasn't really the relationship guy because he was like, he liked to bury himself in numbers and he did all that. I don't like numbers. Yeah. So there's always one or the other, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And I was the one that was out there. And Wayne Clark did glamour. And he would sketch. I would sit there in his studio and I'd watch him sketch. And I'd watch the dream in his mind come alive and the woman that he was envisioning come alive. And I really, it got me always excited. And I started to see how he would drape. I would watch him. He was a draper, so he had the Judy. And then he would drape fabric off on it and he'd create patterns off that. He did everything himself. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would watch that vision come alive, and it was a dream. And we started to talk a lot, Wayne and I, about how do we build a product. And Wayne said to me, one of his teachers, at, he, was at, he went to Sheridan College, one of his teachers said to him, if you could find that one dress, just one, that becomes your million-dollar dress that everybody wants, it's just that one. It's not about a collection, it's about the one. And then Wayne would start to think, what would that be like? And he would also, he and I would go out constantly. We'd go to bars, we'd hang out, we'd go to clubs at night, late at night. <laughs> we'd hang out, we'd watch people. And we'd see who are the, which are the women that walked in with confidence? What did they have about them? And we realized, like, the woman in that simple, that simple dress that just walks in and doesn't care, it was simplicity. And she'd walk in and she'd own the room. And... Perhaps the one that was overly extravagant tried to cover up her insecurity with too much stuff. Mm -hmm. We decided we wanted simple. Mm -hmm. We wanted the simple dress that a woman of any size could put on and feel absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. We wanted to transform her. And that's when I started to realize that clothes can transform you. Well, they're like a form, they're a form of personal expression, right? Personal expression, um, exactly. You know, I want you to keep going, but like yeah. I find myself the way I dress is based on my mood. Yeah, on your mood, exactly. Or we on have the weather, many like, personalities. I'm wearing I mean, all, it's, we're right? Saturday, so yeah, we're this is Saturday wear. Yeah, well, Saturday. By, yeah. Um, see, it's all very interesting. There's so many interesting things about what you're saying, um, and I, I'm trying to find like what I actually want to talk about. But um, I think it's really interesting, you know, as this progresses, and you know where you ended up at Holtz that you were developing a skill for just paying attention to people, people watching, mm -hmm. which um, as you transitioned to Holtz, your, your, your first job at Holtz was a, 
Were you a buyer? No, I was never a buyer. Oh, you were I, never I a buyer. Bypass, and that was the interesting thing because people asked me, what was your first job? She hired me to be a fashion director right off the bat. I didn't even know what that meant. Like so many of you listening to this episode, I spent a lot of time thinking about ways to generate incremental revenue in my business. Should we be advertising on social media? How about Google AdWords? It's totally overwhelming. And then it hit me. Isn't it easier to market and sell to people who are already customers or prospective customers? If you run an e-commerce store on Shopify, you have to think of Spently when you're looking to elevate the experience of your current customers and hot prospects. They make it easy for store owners to create beautiful email receipts, abandoned checkout emails, and other notifications with branded, personalized marketing messages and upsells. It's the easiest way to drive repeat purchases and convert abandoned checkouts with an easy-to-use platform and a top-notch analytics dashboard. Best of all, it only takes 30 seconds to install the app from the Shopify App Store. You just sign up, create some branded templates, and voila! I've tried other providers, and trust me when I say this, that Spendly is the best at what they do. You can take my word for it, or just try it out for free and see what all the fuss is about. All you have to do is follow the Spently link in my Instagram bio, at Mr. Andrew Coelho. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. I have no clue, and that I'll tell you about that story. It's a very interesting oh, story. Okay, so hold on. Let's, I, let's backtrack here. Yeah. Bit, right? so, so wait, so I'm doing business with Holt Renfrew. Right, you with know, Wayne Clark. With Wayne Clark. Okay, so you're selling to them. I'm selling to them, okay. and then, but I'm also selling to Bergdorf Goodman. Okay, oh, wow. To Nima Marcus. Okay. Okay, I'm selling to, um, well, Eaton's was around in those days, no longer around, and lots of little boutiques Mm -hmm. across Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. And as we started growing, we came up, Wayne Clark came up with that one dress, style 1690, I think it was. Oh my God, you remember the style Yes, because it was was our first million dollar dress. And we were in our 20s. What did it look like? So... And it became a big knock. People started knocking, knocking. off this dress. So That's when they, you know you've made it, right? Yeah. People start started knocking it off. It off. <laughs> so it was, first of all, it was um, polyester Georgette. We bought, I used to go to to uh, to, to uh, Paris to Premier Vision with Wayne to buy our fabrics. And my husband, because he was the financial person, would go. He was always about the price that he was going to come up with to sell the retailer, right? Because mm-hmm. in those days, by the way, there's only one way you distribute it. That was wholesale or you open up or you open up your own store. Right. There was no internet. There's no e-commerce. Of course. Okay? Yeah. There was no, if you're going to do direct to the consumer, you were a retailer mm-hmm. and if, or you were a manufacturer. We were manufacturers, wholesaling. Sure. His thing was always, you can't spend more than $9 a yard on your fabric. And of course we would go to, Premier Vision and find all these beautiful silk Georgettes that were flowing and that's the fabric he wanted to work with Wayne and they were very expensive and then um, but we also found that we if we own there was a lot that we learned about how we become real proficient and how we approach our business we just we saw that there was this one dress that we were doing it was an elastic waist believe it or not. It was a full circle skirt, lots of yards. In those days, it was like the late 70s, early 80s. We had like shoulder pads, Mm. big long sleeves. It was a beautiful, it was a dance dress. You put it on and you could dance all night. It was just, and it was all in the Georgette, the chiffon. Mm -hmm. And we we thought, we're going to take a loss first on this. Let's see if buyers like this dress. So what do we really want it to retail for? So even though this fabric's costing us a lot of money, we're going to just 
take a loss so right do you now. price it low yeah just to get the right markup to work with them and i can't remember i think the dress was about back in those days it, it wasn't cheap It was probably like 500 dollars or something that those days was probably pretty expensive but the, every single buyer from bergdorf's to sat to all of them would come in and they would place a an order on this dress and then they kept repeating and repeating and repeating because the dress always fit exactly and then it be, they became it became like the mother of the bride dress so they became it became a resource for all these stores mm-hmm. and we eventually we took so we as we started to get a lot of orders off this one style we went off to korea with the fabric the, the expensive fabric and they copied that fabric for us at a very inexpensive price so what we started we own what we call grayish grayish goods we own those goods we just had to dye it up in different colors right and so we so we were able so we we the whole supply chain was a lot simpler and we also manufactured we never went off to china everything was manufactured in toronto we looked at every step of the way so product quality everything was great but um one day i mean wayne so with Wayne Clark, because fantasy for him was so important, all he ever wanted to do, all he wanted was fashion show. He wanted to do a fashion show. And back in those days, 70s, I'd say it was probably 1979, 78, nobody did fashion shows. No one even heard about fashion shows. There's no Toronto Fashion Week. Like, no, there was no Toronto Fashion Week. Um, but, well, there was a Toronto Fashion Week. It was interesting, but that's a whole other story. But it wasn't as what we're talking about today. And um, we decided we were going to do our first fashion show at the Four Seasons Hotel. And it was, and this was giving him a chance to do beyond those chiffon dresses. The chiffon dresses, those Georgette dresses, where he was becoming locked into Mother of the Bride, but he wanted to do sexy, like really sexy sequin. He wanted to do like Vegas and, you know, all that. It was like Donna Summer's moment. He was, dis- he was like the disco queen of it all. And he wanted those type of sexy, sexy dresses. So we did a runway of that fashion show. It was incredible. And we took that collection on the road. And we started to sell real glamour as well. So the, so what I also learned out of that is that it was the Georgette dress, which he hated at the end, Wayne, that was our bread and butter. So I always Why built, did he hate it? Because it was like, I'm a commodity. I don't want... It, it, it's like, you know, you go to a concert a rock concert and mm-hmm. you always want to hear the old stuff that the, the rock that the singer sings mm-hmm. and there's new stuff and you don't want to hear the new stuff you want to know the stuff so the buyers were always coming back and he's like there's I want to be I want to get sexy and gl- more glamorous this is not glamour to me yeah. but it's paying the bills right well definitely paying okay. the bills so out of that I saw there's a tr- I built a pyramid mm-hmm. it was a three It was so if you imagine a pyramid mm-hmm. okay with three layers in the pyramid the Georgette dresses were the foundation of our pyramid. That's what gave us the foundation and all the money. To, and then he could layer up twice. There was right at the top of the pyramid, right at the top is like that beacon. That's going to be the glam. That's going to be really unacceptable. It's not going to be, it's not going to be um, mass. Right. For the very select. Very limited. Limited to build that name, Wayne and most Clark. expensive, obviously. Most expensive. Yes. That's where he could do what he wanted. Because out of that would filter down the most commercial pieces. Sure, which he hated. Which he hated. <laughs> yeah. But that was the balance. 
And so he, we could build a three price, like what we call good, better, best. Sure. Okay. And it became this pyramid. Your pricing pyramid? Yes. It became our pricing pyramid. And I carried that on with me with holds, with wherever I go. It was just like a simple, I could go through, see. And if things got out of balance, like if your really expensive pieces got too heavy, too much up there, then your pyramid would tip over. So it was always, you could grow your pyramid and you can grow top line as long as your foundation keeps growing with you too. That's how I saw it. It was simple. It, it makes a lot of sense. It was very simple. Absolutely. You know? And so what the story basically was this. I took my collection to New York and we had this incredible, beautiful dresses and Bergdorf Goodman bought it and Nima Marcus bought it, but Holtz refused to buy it. it was a, I'll never forget, it was a sequin, sequin gown. Gord, it was probably... It, Probably retailed in those days like $1,100, but it was like magnificent. Why did Holtz refuse to buy it? Because they were buying Mother of the Bride. Basics. Oh, they They're, didn't want to like top a pyramid No, style. they didn't say. They just didn't want to take the risk. Right. I mean, even where it can be a risk because you don't know, like you could be left with extra inventory. Sure. So um, <clears throat> at the same time, I decided with my husband, I said, look, I think we need to start to do an advertising campaign. We need to get, we're, we're in the American market. We need people to know who Wayne Clark is. And we, I want to do some print ads. I want to go into Vogue. I want to go to Harper's Bazaar. And he said, fine, but this is your budget. You can, and I, and I had no background in advertising. So I called all my friends and I got connections with an advertising company out of New York. And, but what we decided to do is a double page spread in black and white, because in those days, everybody did color. And I was like, how do we stand out from the crowd? Do something different, right? Something different. So we're going to do black and white. And the photographer that I loved the most was his name was Victor Skribneski. And in those days, Victor Skribneski was the photographer out of Chicago that shot all the Estee Lauder campaigns. And in those days, those Estee Lauder campaigns with that woman was always like, that's the Wayne Clark woman. And what I also learned about photography and how if you're a designer and you're looking to hire a photographer, you're not the one looking through the lens. So you better love the way that photographers what that eye what that photographer sees so I love what that photographer saw and you trusted him to create and your vision him. and we shot this incredible double page spread oh and then I looked for old models that I grew up with when I was a kid in Vogue magazine a cappuccino and all these models and to see where are they today because they maybe they're unemployed and I can hire them for less money and that what started to happen so we did double page spreads in black and white and the tagline was, some women, know, it was, some women know exactly what they want, Wayne Clark. That's all it was. And it was an image of a woman in a gorgeous dress with a young guy. Did it work? With a young guy. Mm-hmm. Some women know exactly what they want, Wayne Clark. We started, nobody knew what that was. Was it a perfume ad? Nobody knew what it was. And eventually, people start calling up, like the photographer, and going, like, How, "Who's Wayne Clark?" It was, and that started to work. Cause it was like, "Who is this person?" Something new. And how I got to Holtz was that I met to Bonnie. Bonnie Brooks was the senior VP of marketing at the time. I finally, I couldn't get Holtz to buy this gown. Mm-hmm. And yet now we have an ad campaign, and we're going to have a list of where you can buy this gown. And that's what you. And sold there was them not out. one store in Toronto, not like Holt Renfrew. Bergdorf's has it, Neiman's, but my own town, you can't support a Canadian designer sure. of the most beautiful thing that they can do. So I called up Bonnie and I said, look, Bonnie, you need to buy this. And you already had a relationship with her? Yes. Yeah, so we had met. 
we had met, and like I said, I always decide also, I think that for a young entrepreneurs who are going, let's say, in the fashion world or any product, talk to the people who will make the decisions. Mm-hmm. I like to go right to the top first, so I have that relationship. Because if you go only to the buyer, if you start with the buyer first, you have to stick with the buyer. Because if you go above them, they're going to think, oh, they're going, it's, it's just not, you know, it's not right. It's not, and so it's, the etiquette's wrong. So for me, I go right to the top dog first. Okay, and then what, what is, and then it's like, that, that's and interesting. What does that conversation look like? Like if I'm, so, you know, we talked about this. I run a, you know, luxury travel bags and accessories mm-hmm, brand, mm-hmm, Monty & Co. Mm-hmm. And I want to get into Holt Renfrew and, you know, you're the fashion director. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know nothing. I'm at the beginning of my journey and you've got all this buying power. Like, what can I possibly say to you that is going to even get you to think about carrying my, my collection or, you know, mine or anyone else's? Really? So I actually even think I would even go even higher. I'd go right to the president, which is like, but I think that as in those days it was easier. Today it might be a little harder, but not necessarily. So what I always did was say that, you know, I'm um, starting a business, starting to get traction in my business. I'm Canadian in your hometown, especially if it's like a Holt Renfrew uh, or an HBC. And I'm not asking you to buy my collection. Mm-hmm. I just want your advice and guidance as a young entrepreneur. Interesting. And that's how I start. I started with everyone like that. And they're, it's interesting. People, are, people actually do, it doesn't matter how high up they are, they do want to help. Mm-hmm. They're, they're honored. Can I have 15 minutes of your time? Can I just show you? What do you think? If they're... If the president won't do that, most of them won't go into your showroom. But they might, then they might send the senior VP of merchandising, not, to, not the buyer right away. Because the buyer, actually, at the end of the day, most buyers are there just to, fulfill, to do the fulfillment. They don't really have the power. It's somebody else saying, okay, you're buying that brand, this brand. Now go in that there and buy it. Mm-hmm. So um, to me, it's like get, get, start to build a relationship not as a business relationship yet. Help me with, just give me some guidance because I'm starting out. To make it more personal before. Make it personal. And they feel, they feel great. And that's how it started with Bonnie. Uh, I had this great relationship. I invited her in actually to uh, one of our product knowledges. Mm-hmm. And we became, you know, very cl- We became very friendly. And so I could pick up the phone and go, Bonnie, can you look at, your buyers are buying, like, the, the mo- they're not, you know, the most mass way they can. And then at the end of the season, they mark their name on the tickets and say, when you do, can, I, can I have a sample for myself of the most beautiful things? Mm-hmm. So they want the most beautiful things for themselves, but they don't want to buy for the Canadian population these beautiful clothes. And it was like this dialogue. And she would say, oh, Barbie, you don't understand. We have this bottom line. We have, you know, we can't have the risk. Margins, this, that, Mar- the Yeah, but, and, you know. And so, um, but we started a dialogue, Bonnie and I. And I finally said, oh, the, the, the beauty, the one, the one that we really... I think was the cement because I always, like I said, I'm fearless that way. So I'll just be honest. I picked up the phone and I said, um, Toronto International Film Festival was just starting. It was in September. It was, in, it was called the Toronto, it wasn't the International Film Festival. It was the Festival of Festivals or something like that. It was crazy, mm-hmm. small. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it was starting, so did she. And I said, during, in September, I would like, I showed her the ad campaign I had just shot. I said, can you reproduce this ad campaign in your window on Bloor Street? Because all the celebrities are staying in the Four Seasons in those days was there. And Holtz is going to be, they're going to come by the window. And I want this window. I want this for Wayne. And she's like, 
Barb, what do you think? Do you think that we sit around waiting for ideas at the last second? We plan our windows six months to a year out. So I said, so here's the window that I'd like you to do. Show me the window that you have planned. So I said, and then you look at it and decide, is that going to get me excited? Which window is going to get me more excited? So she called me up and she said, we love your window. I, I brought the ad campaign in to marketing. Everybody loved it. We're going to do it. So you designed the window. It was an ad campaign that I had shot and they were going to redo it. Right. It's what these big white stallion horses and uh, a, a woman in this gorgeous gown with the, the barn guy, the, the, the jockey basically. With, and she had, it was, she had her like the crop in her hand and it was just this like love affair between this young guy and this woman. It was very provocative. And I always thought windows need to be provocative and they have to create emotion. For sure. So, and her window was just a big, a commodity so, window. So Holtz is like known for their windows. For their windows. And, and you're I not even in, working there. And, and you walk in and say, and hey, this so is what So Bonnie's like, yeah, all right, we're going to do this. We'll give you a two week. She said, I think she gave us a two week thing. And then the interesting thing about that was, so Jane Fonda was in Toronto uh, launching on Golden Pond with her father at the time. That was premiering at the Toronto International Film Festival. Mm -hmm. And she walks down Bloor Street and she sees this window. And then she comes into the store. She buys the gown and $50,000 worth of more merchandise. That was like, I get a call. Wow, your window really, we had the biggest sale we've ever had and was Jane Fonda. And Jane Fonda at the Oscars that year wore the dress. Wore the dress. Wow. I get shivers when I think, I still to this day, it gets me really excited. So that, in that moment, Bonnie was like, she was like, we, you know, she kept, all, so she said, it was interesting that you thought that that would work and it worked. So then she would start to send me ad campaigns that they would put in, like, would this grab your attention? And then she said, what do you think about this window? In those days, we'd, it would be by fax. She would fax me stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, my, at the time, my husband would come into my office and he'd go, what are you doing? So, oh, a whole round is sending me. They're like, they want to advertise something. And they're asking if it, if it would attract my attention. So, so this is happening. Yeah. And I'm not working for them. You're not working for them. Have you even had any discussion, any hint, anything about the idea of even going to work no, with them? No, not at all. Zero. So you're basically consulting for them. Consulting for free. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm consulting, having lunch. And yeah. like she's, she's sending stuff and she's just saying, hey, what do you think? But of course, now she's, they're buying a little bit more and more, a lot better. You know, and so because she's now my friend too. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm shot and now I'm traveling and I'm traveling to Europe because I'm fortunate to be able to because I'm buying fabrics in Paris. And then when I was in Paris, I would make a little stop over to Milan to see in Milan what was happening there. So I was always looking at stores, looking at service, watching customers, seeing how people are shopping, like what, you know, and I always want to be part, part of that luxury world. I like to live an elevated life. I will not, never apologize for that. So I love that life. Mm -hmm. And I felt special. And I was young and we were... The bottom line, the bottom of my bottom of my pyramid was making a lot of money for me to build this company with my husband, and I discovered a little store, uh, about eighty nineteen, like early eighties, tiny little store in Milan, that was doing little nylon handbags, nylon quilted handbags with gold chains. It had an interesting logo, 
which was the pyramid on the reverse. It was like, it was teetering mm -hmm. with the point down. And I, and for me, it's like, why are you, why is your point down? That to me, it's like you're spinning on a point. I don't know about that. I used to kind of look at things like that and mm -hmm. go, it's pointing the wrong way. Yeah. Should be pointing up, not down, but whatever. Sure. The name of that collection was Prada. Only handbags. I bought my, and people were like, it was a tiny store. I'm not kidding, maybe three, 200 square feet, tiny. Handbags only, one style. And women were lined up outside the store because they could only take in a few people at a time. Mm -hmm. So I would like, and I bought this nylon quilted bag, gold, two gold, double gold chains with that Prada logo and Do you black. remember how much it cost back Yeah, then? it was about $525. And I wore it, I brought it home. And I brought it to Bonnie. And I go, you should be carrying this collection at Holtz. I said, do you know it? She goes, no. I go, you should be carrying this at Holtz. Because if you want to be luxury, and you want to be the only place to shop, you need to start to be the first to bring in these cool collections, OK? Yeah. And she's like, we could never sell a nylon bag for $525. And nobody knows what that name is. So we're not interested. That's OK. So every six months I go, so did you buy, did you look at Prada yet? Like I always call her up, because Prada to me was a very interesting store, and I learned a lot from that store. It was like Studio 54, because I'd also gone to Studio 54 when I was a young girl. I remember those lineups. They, there was nobody in, in the club, and they created demand of want. Just by having the line outside. Right? Line outside. So it's it all like, perception. Yeah, and it's, again, it was just, so anyways, I'm, so now Bonnie's calling me, and I'm always talking to her about stuff. And then she said one day, so this was the clink, one day now we're having lunch at a place called the Windsor Arms Hotel. And it was a big lunch. We were actually going to do um, a big fashion show with Flair Magazine, Holt Renfrew and Wayne Clark. And they were going to be our sponsors, the magazine. And um, we're sitting around talking and we, have, we had a glass of wine and we had lots of water glasses. And there's a lot of glasses on the table. And she stops and she said to me, would you ever consider working for another company besides your own? Mm -hmm. I go. Had you ever thought about it at that, that time or? I was thinking about that because my first husband and I were starting to mm -hmm. separate. So you needed some stability. I needed to, get, I needed to be, because I relied on him to do all that financial side. And I felt, I did all the PR and I was thinking, you know, Maybe I should start my own company, but I'm not sure. That was fear. Mm -hmm, for sure. So I was like That's living a nice... That's usually what holds people back. Right, right? fear. Yeah. I was living this nice life, but um, we weren't divorced yet, but I could kind of feel that things were like not going the way it needed to go, and we had two kids, little kids by now. But she, obviously I probably shared it with her because she said, well, would you ever consider working for another company? Like, would you ever leave that company? I said, well, it would depend. What do you, why, do you have something in mind? She says, well... Would you ever work, consider working for Holt Renfrew? You've been listening to The Andrew Quello Show. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, at MrAndrewQuello, and make sure to visit my website at andrewquello.ca to subscribe to my email newsletter. I hold a weekly giveaway, and the only way to find out about it is if you're in my community of fashionpreneurs.